Hello, welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me on LiveTo110.com, and you can find this video podcast on the YouTube channel at Wendy Live to 110, and on the corresponding blog post on my website. You can go to LiveTo110.com to learn all about your how to heal your health conditions naturally, detoxification, and my version of paleo, the modern paleo diet. Today we have Sayer G, founder of GreenMedInfo.com. He's going to be talking about how to support your hormones naturally. It's amazing the array of nutrients and supplements and foods that you can use to naturally support your hormones without using or resorting to bioidentical hormones or hormone replacement therapy, which is shown to increase cancer rates. So we're going to talk about that. Such a good podcast. Sayer G is so knowledgeable. His website, uh, greenmedinfo.com, is unbelievable, and I go there myself a lot when I'm researching blog posts. Highly, highly recommend it. The Live to 110 podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment that we suggest today on the show. I am so thrilled that my Body Bio Rehab program has finally launched. You can check it out at bodybiorehab.com. And I started this program and I wanted to develop this online program to help my clients and my readers and, and anyone who's looking to improve their health to learn the basics about health. Uh, so many of my clients have low energy, they have fatigue, they have brain fog, uh, they have, you know, they're overweight, etc. And so Body Bio Rehab. Uh, you know, solves these problems. It helps you to regain your energy. It helps you to lose weight in 10 pounds in 30 days uh, with a 30-day meal plan that I've outlined in the program. It can help to reduce brain fog by removing foods to which are sensitive and uh, many of the other tips and tricks that I, I talk about in the program. And it outlines the five pillars of health. You have to eat the right diet. You have to live a healthy lifestyle, take the right supplements. You have to uh, exercise the right kind, the right amounts. You have to absolutely incorporate detox into your health regime. This is the magic bullet that many people today are missing in their health regime. They're sleeping, they're eating right, uh, they're exercising, and they're like, why don't I feel good? Why don't I, I feel like I should feel better than I do. And the reason is because they are missing that key component, which is detoxification, which you hear me talking about all the time on the podcast and my website, that I cannot stress enough how important that is. And then finally in the program, we talk about how to get better sleep, how to get more out of your sleep, and how to reduce stress. So go check it out at bodybiorehab.com. Our guest today is Sayer G. He is the founder of Green Med Info. He's a widely recognized researcher, author, and lecturer, and is on the advisory board of the National Health Federation, and the founder of the world's most widely referenced evidence-based natural health resources of its kind in greenmedinfo.com. He started it in 2008 in order to provide the world an open access, evidence-based resource supporting natural and integrative modalities. Sayers on the board of directors of For Fearless Parent, steering committee member of the Global GMO Free Coalition, a reviewer at the International Journal of Human Nutrition and Functional Medicine. Sayer G is also the co-founder of the book The Cancer Killers, The Causes the Cure, with New York Times bestseller uh, Dr. Ben Lerner and Dr. Charles Majors. 
The Cancer Killers, The Causes the Cure, offers a radically new perspective on cancer, overcoming the prevailing half-century-old fatalistic view of it's all in the genes into a liberating, liberating and empowering new vision of what the human body is capable of overcoming given the right conditions. Sayer, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, well, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit uh, about yourself and why you started GreenMedInfo.com? Okay, well, I'm a health advocate starting with necessity early on, six months of age. I was diagnosed with severe bronchial asthma and spent a good portion of my life trying to piece together how to get myself off medications, prevent unnecessary surgeries, which I had a number of them throughout my adolescence. And um, I'm presently passionate about what I do because of this sort of um, opportunity available to us with the way technology is set up today. Anyone with a handheld device can access speed of light, you know, all the world scientific data that has accumulated in the past 50 years. Um, so when I discovered that the National Library of Medicine makes available this database, but no one knew about it, I spent about five years just indexing all of these studies that I thought were of great value to support the kind of advocacies that you're doing all the time. Uh, you're bringing up integrative, natural, alternative approaches that are evidence-based, which I thought there was a real lack of you know, referencing going on. Not that you need references. I'm all about anecdotal uh, and, and, and personal healing, and I personally don't apply the standard of having to have a clinical trial to prove that you know, vitamin C is good for a cold. But uh, it certainly helps to, you know, counterman the criticism against our field, which is un unfounded, which is there's no evidence to support natural medicine. So. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the powers that be trying to <laughs> keep much. their dollars, <laughs> for it's sure. true. Very much so. So. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, how to support your hormones naturally. Can you support your hormones naturally without doing hormone replacement therapy? Yeah, I think it's uh, really uh, profound that we have so many options today, you know, but there is a problem with, um, you know, synthetic hormone replacement, of course. When you look at oral contraceptives, for example, and all the increase in cardiovascular uh, disease risk as well as cancers, um, it's clear that at least the synthetic forms or those derived, let's say, from a horse like uh, Premarin was, are not going to work well with the human body. But of course, there's the second option, which is to use bioidentical, you know, often derived from, you know, say, a soy um, compound and then convert it into what it is, should be about the same as what we produce. So that's a safer approach. But when you're dealing with replacement therapies, the, the real issue is, of course, sometimes you're going to feed the deficiency. So for women particularly, you have this situation where the ovarian reserve starts to really tap out in the early 40s, sometimes sooner. Depends on levels of stress and a number of other factors, of course, nutritional issues, environmental exposures. And then what happens is the adrenal glands actually provide the backup ovary system for women. So, of course, having children or just being in a, a tough, uh, stressful world will cause a lot of exhaustion. And, you know, with the fight or flight stress response, the uh, body will prioritize stealing progesterone from the ovaries to produce cortisol, for example, in the adrenal cortex. So over time, we rob from, or women rob from the ovaries to deal with these extenuating circumstances. So when you replace um, a hormone like progesterone, which may be going down because the ovaries are starting to limit production, then it could cause an acceleration of the 
um, sort of atrophying of that organ's ability to produce. And you know, there's something called an endocrine a negative feedback loop where sometimes you replace hormones and clearly that's sending the message to the endocrine gland, I'm okay, I don't need to produce any more because the body doesn't want to produce excess. Now, there are cases, of course, where hormone replacement might save that uh, endocrine gland and give it sort of a break so it can recover. So I, I certainly allow for the possibility that given uh, the clinician is on top of their game and they're using hormone replacement, the natural form, correctly, it could have profound benefits. And of course, there's also the reality, which is you look at some individuals who've decided to go, say, early in their 40s or later and do full-blown uh, uh, hormone replacement who are experiencing a sort of health and vitality and well-being that is reminiscent of their 20s. And they can go through long periods of time uh, feeling really good. And, and who's to judge that that isn't worth the, quote, risk, that their quality of life is so good, their skin is just so good. It, it's really remarkable. I've sometimes seen those who've been really successful with hormone replacement. But my point, I guess, today is that there is a third option which I think should be considered part of the precautionary principle in medicine is until you do the heroic approaches, let's feed the ability of the body to produce its own. And it comes down to very simple nutritional steps as well as using some of the plant allies that have been around for literally thousands and thousands of years that traditional cultures and a lot of the, I think, orally transmitted information through the medicine woman or quote medicine man in the tribe, <laughs> you know, like for example, eat pomegranate to support hormone health later in life. Now we have all this science showing that it kind of works like a backup ovary. And that's just one aspect really of what pomegranate does. Because you could say the same on some level for vitamin C. Uh, we have research now showing that vitamin C as an electron donor is able to regenerate transient hormone metabolites that have basically estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, after they do their thing, lose electrons and become semi-toxic or, or carcinogenic metabolites. They're called transient hormones. And vitamin C research has shown that because it's an electron donor, it's able to regenerate the, the hormones that are very hard for the body to produce. And instead of it obviously having to be broken down, excreted, it can be utilized again. So, so for me, looking at natural ways to support the production of your endogenous hormone supply as well as maybe even taking what you've produced and helping it to work better and longer uh, is the first step for those who are concerned and they're starting to experience a lot of the symptoms perhaps of hormone insufficiency and they know that they don't want to go maybe HRT yet and it's really expensive, thousands of dollars, of course, to do it right, um, that there are other options, of course, to start with. So let's talk about the, the first topic uh, regarding natural hormones, secretagogues. And mm. so what are secretagogues and how do they help to support hormones? Yeah, it's a kind of a weird sign name, but they basically just help you secrete more of a hormone or, for example, if you're a breastfeeding mother, uh, galactagogues will help you produce more milk. You know, traditionally you get mother's milk tea or you use fennel or even papaya uh, will will help to actually increase breast milk production, which as any new mother knows is like pretty life or death when you're dealing with a, a baby that's hungry and you don't want to use formula. So that is true for other glands. So for women, for example, the ovaries and the adrenal glands are two uh, glands that can be benefited from really simple nutritional interventions. Um, I focus a lot on the adrenal gland because, again, I like to think of the little adrenal cortex, the pea-sized glands on top of the kidney, as nature's backup ovaries. And there's a lot of very interesting research, a lot of it's animal research, uh, showing that 
because you know, here's the reality with human research, you can administer a supplement and try to measure how much more hormone the adrenal gland produces, but you can't do it in the same way as if it's an animal model because you, you're not going to cut into that human body and figure it out. So, uh, the, the, so basically, wh- when you look at things like progesterone production in the adrenal gland, which isn't the root of the cascade, so actually you start with cholesterol and then eventually it's turned into progesterone and progesterone turned into cortisol, is that even the administration of cholesterol is able in the animal model to increase progesterone production. And I love talking about that because, you know, the dominant meme in our culture is cholesterol is bad for you. And, you know, there's this huge um, uh, campaign to, to vilify and demonize a essential biomolecule that's the root of all the hormones in our body. And so um, it's interesting to see research clearly showing just the administration of orally cholesterol will increase progesterone production. So that's one tip. And then you've got things like a pantothenic acid, very simple. It's known as the anti-stress vitamin. It's so inexpensive uh, because it seems to immediately help the adrenal gland produce more of the hormone um, precursors that it needs to do the job well. So the anti-stress component might be related to the fact that it helps your adrenal gland recover and therefore not stress out, of course, the ovary gland as well, which would be one of the consequences, sort of accelerated aging. Yeah, I try to give that to all my clients across the board, pantothenic acid, because everyone has adrenal fatigue. Um, You know, if you live in our modern world, there's so many stressors, external and internal, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. heavy metal and chemical toxicities, et cetera, that stress the adrenals. They need a lot of support, and pantothenic acid is perfect. That's a great one. And another one that really comes to mind is magnesium, because we live in such a sort of calcium-dominant culture when we think about things like bone health. And the reality is that magnesium deficiency is probably the primary cause that I know of, of weak bones as well as cardiovascular disease risk because calcification of the plaque in the artery is sort of the end stage of this decades-long process of the buildup of plaque is once it gets all calcified, you end up with the potential for it through a stress to cause a, a clot. So magnesium is very effective for adrenal health because it's actually essential for producing adrenal hormones as well as it buffers the catecholamine response associated with fight or flight. So the sympathetic activa- activation that occurs when you're stressed is buffered by magnesium. And then you think of things that are simple, like sugar is actually treated by the body in theory as sort of a, a toxic exposure. And there's an adrenaline response that's produced. And that's one of the reasons why you know, it's believed that for every glucose you know, molecule you have in your body that you have to break down that's excessive, you, you need a certain amount of magnesium to compensate. And without it, it can have real powerful adverse downstream effects. So, so magnesium, again, so, so I like to look at the adrenal health and, again, by implication, ovarian health and this sort of secretagogue issue from the perspective of real simple things, pantothenic acid. And of course, whenever you take a B vitamin, I advocate, take it with the background of the B group. And, you know, it gets kind of confusing because you have a lot of pseudovitamins, or, you know, folic acid, for example, really is starting to see its demise as far as uh, it being considered a healthy uh, vitamin form because there's an indication that it actually is toxic for those with the MTHFR um, uh, SNPs, which which is the genetic inability to deal with it and produce the active form, which is the tetramethylene hydrofolate. It turns out that that 
the complex group is actually found in the gut if we have the right strains. And that's actually how we were designed is that truly we are a B vitamin producing factory and our gut bacteria support it. So of course, when you take a folate or pantothenic uh, as an isolate, make sure you have the background because technically my feeling is unless it's really delivered in a whole food form or produced endogenously, taking an isolate would probably produce some deficiency or imbalance eventually. Now, of course, relative to pharmaceutical exposures, this is really a small concern because yeah. people love to, you know, beat up vitamin C <laughs> isolates and, and talk about USP vitamins like they're as toxic as drugs. When we know, like when it comes to the, you know, poison control centers in this country, there's no risk truly. But I still like to advocate for, of course, the ancestral approach, which goes back millions of years as we were supposed to get our nutrients from foods and or endogenously through bacterial action. So, so, so in other words, so B vitamins, yes, very good. Magnesium, make sure you're on the right level with that. And keep in mind, my feeling with magnesium is you, unlike calcium, you can take way too much. It can be very toxic. Is You can take, take, take it more carelessly in a way because if, if you have a laxative effect, then you know that you're probably getting more than your body needs. So it's really nice the way that works. And vitamin C, it turns out that that's essential for adrenal hormone uh, production. And again, not only does it stimulate the production of these hormones, but it will help to resurrect and keep active as well as neutralize the carcinogenic metabolites of, of these steroid hormones. So those three things are really a ground floor, I think, for supporting uh, your own hormone production. With vitamin C, are you talking about ascorbic acid or food-based like amla and camu camo, mm-hmm. et cetera? Great question. Ascorbic acid is really often produced from, here we go, GMO corn, uh, which is then you know either used uh, to be converted through a genetically modified form of yeast or bacteria into ascorbic acid. So it's not a pleasant picture. Um, so yes, when you can get it from a, a dense source like amla, camu camu, or again, if we really look at the palate of rainbow-like foods, you know, the vegetables and fruits, those are going to provide literally hundreds of other essential biomolecules. So my feeling is, of course, even though you get less by molecular weight, because we're so focused on, okay, I was told to take vitamin C, I need to take, let's see, a thousand milligrams. And we forget that relative to its intake and the quality and its effect in our body, it's really more about, again, getting it from a food source, like you mentioned, is excellent. But even then, I will say, for convenience, uh, there are companies that produce chelates, which are they're going to take the ascorbic acid, bind it to a mineral, for example, um, a mineral absorbates, and those are at least going to prevent some of the quote acidity that occurs. Um, and then, of course, uh, a lot of whole food uh, vitamin manufacturers still produce great alternatives as well. So let's talk about pomegranates, because I thought that was really, really interesting. I was uh, researching the questions for this podcast, and uh, I thought it was really interesting that uh, you wrote an article about uh, how pomegranates can serve as a backup ovary. (laughs) Yes. Can you talk a little about that? It was amazing to me, uh, Wendy, because when I looked at this study, it was published, um, gosh, it's been about seven years, I think now. It was an animal study where they, you know, this is a common practice in research and it's a little gruesome. I'm sorry if there are any vegans listening or or animal rights (laughs) activists, but unfortunately that's the way biomedicine marches on is they take out the ovaries of a female rat. Within a few weeks, they start to experience full-blown 
menopausal symptoms, which include things like rapid deceleration of bone quality and density, uh, midsection fat accumulation, depression. Well, one could argue because they were just experimented on, they're a bit depressed, yeah. but regardless. <laughs> uh, and then what you do is you administer in the intervention group pomegranate, and it's as if you've never taken out the ovaries. And and to me, this was fascinating because, you know, in the era of Fosamax, which is really industrial solvent um, being used to make the bone denser while basically slowly killing people, unfortunately, and I can go into why I say that, uh, or things like estrogen modulators, which are still risk for embolism. And there are a lot of the bone drugs are just really quite frankly harmful. And um, of course, when you have something as powerful as pomegranate reversing all the symptoms of what is basically your... Um, menopausal syndrome. And then you look at the classification of the pomegranate fruit, and it's actually the fruiting ovary of the pomegranate plant. So, And then you take a cross-section of this beautiful fruit, and you, it looks just like the cross-section of an ovary. I love that. You had the diagram. So, so interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Because yeah. that's you know, something that's called the doctrine of signatures, you know, medieval uh, medicine. They drew parallels. The brain looks like a walnut, and yeah. you know, different foods look like different body parts. Of course, it's not all literal, but it is fascinating. And I feel that this parallel... Now, here's another really fascinating fact. When they assayed pomegranate along with hundreds of other plants uh, to see how much estrone they could find because it turns out at E1, which is a very important form of estrogen in, in women especially, uh, especially during menopause or perimenopause, uh, they found higher levels in pomegranate than anything they'd ever tested before. So not only did they see experimentally that it could replace the ovary of an animal, then they identify the actual compound, which is essential for preventing those symptoms of taking the ovaries out or the ovaries naturally declining in production. And then, of course, it looks like an ovary. And then, of course, you go into cultural history and almost every culture that had access to pomegranate associated it with regeneration and, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, increased youthfulness, prosperity, uh, longevity, it became clear that, wow, they were just basically performing their thousands of years of uh, clinical trials on themselves, just eating it and noticing the effect. It really does help to regenerate our health and keep us young later into life. So what forms of pomegranate? Are we talking the juice, like you have to eat the seeds or whatnot? Very good question. The seed would contain most of the compounds associated with hormones, as I understand. And then you have the like pithy stuff that's very astringent, uh, which is the white stuff, that would have a lot of benefit too. And then the juice, very much so. And it's fascinating. Here's why. Is that, you know, number one killer, men and women, is cardiovascular disease, right? Heart attack and atherosclerosis. And it turns out pomegranate is the one thing studied that was shown in Israeli trial to, to reverse the intima media thickness, which is the middle portion of the carotid artery that swells and blocks the flow of blood, uh, up to 40%. And some of the people in this trial started to see the reversal of the deadly disease that apparently there's no conventional cure for uh, within a matter of just months. And, and, and when you take pomegranate in, it has a very astringent taste and effect. And the, the, the gums have an epithelial tissue, which is the same tissue that's found in the endothelium, the, the lining of the artery, which is so sensitive. So you can see how it literally cleanses the, the, the gunk and the plaque 
in the arteries. Um, so I mentioned that to women because we still kind of don't think about that as being the primary risk. Women are more concerned about breast cancer, which is for reasons that unfortunately are not um, right because of overdiagnosis and x-ray mammography and, and the way the industry has convinced women their breasts are just uh, time bombs ready to go off for breast cancer. So I would remind them that um, pomegranate then does two things. It helps to support their hormonal health, and then it reduces the cardiovascular disease risk. But here's the third thing that's fascinating is that as an anti-cancer agent, it is one of the more potent identified thus far. Um, so if you go on our Green Med Info database, you look up pomegranate, you'll see over 100 diseases, including very serious infections like MRSA, um, sort of viruses that are also comorbid in cardiovascular disease, uh, like herpes, uh, family viruses, is able to kill those. So, so again, it's amazing when you look at these these substances and, and realize that they truly are sort of able to do many things at once. Yeah, yeah. I always uh, overlook the pomegranates at the store because they're such a pain in the ass to eat. Uh, I know <laughs> it's true. I have pomegranate pills for that reason. I know. <laughs> so, you think a supplement is as effective? Is there anything to look for in a supplement? Um, I would say, yeah, whenever possible, I go for excipient free or reduced, which means all those inactive ingredients they have to label. They'll say other ingredients. You'll see magnesium stearate and sometimes other filler ingredients. You just really want it to say nothing else. Um, and it's hard to find. One thing I highly suggest you do, it might be a little pithy or woody, but if you take the Ariels, which are like the seeds, you get them frozen organic and throw them into your smoothie. And women, please do this because this is in, in line with what we're talking about. Add in flaxseed meal. That's another one which has so much benefit for female hormone health, um, especially reduction of breast cancer risk. Um, as well as helping with a lot of the perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms like hot flashes. It's actually very effective for uh, modeling the effect of human estrogens, um, but doing it without any of the risks, quite the opposite. So you make a smoothie, add in those, uh, maybe add in some unsweetened coconut uh, milk, which is a remarkable alternative to a lot of the milk alternatives that really are not very uh, nutritious. Um, hemp milk is another really good one. Uh, then you can add in some blueberries, uh, which have a lot of benefits as well. Uh, so that's one way you could do it. And the flaxseed, it needs to be freshly ground, correct? Because I know, you know some of the oil is begin oxidizing if you buy the, the flaxseed pre-ground. I agree. That's a great point. Yeah, the thing about it, you go to the hardware store and you get linseed oil, which is really oxidized flaxseed oil. It's very toxic. Um, you want to make sure whenever you can to reduce the exposure of light, time, oxygen to seeds that have been opened up. So when you grind it yourself, great. Or some manufacturers, I have no connection to the company, although I like their work, is Barleen's will nitrogen flush the container so that there's no oxygen present when they grind it. So it's convenient because, you know, realistically, when you get people to, including myself, to do these multi-stepped process to do a smoothie, they might not do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, or get your cold-pressed nitrogen-flushed flaxseed oil, which is high lignin because they make some which the filter is, is bigger. So you get a lot of the beneficial estrogens. And estrogens become a dirty word these days for women because the way that the companies like AstraZeneca co-opted the term estrogen and led people to believe and dumb down physicians to the point where they said estrogen causes cancer, um, what they've done is they've really warped the reality. A lot of the estrogenic compounds in our diet are, are, are anti-cancer because they modulate the estrogen receptors yeah. in hormone-sensitive cell types like breast and ovary. 
But flax seeds too. have uh, they they upregulate estriol, not estradiol, which is the the more you know potent form of estrogen. Well, that's a really good point, and they also are what they call selective estrogen receptor modulators, which is a whole class of pharmaceuticals that failed miserably. Aramidex and tamoxifen are in this category. Like tamoxifen is classified by the World Health Organization, the American Cancer Association, as a human carcinogen. So they still give them to treat and prevent cancer. Whereas flaxseed is able to selectively block the receptors on breast tissue that are known to be upregulated in real cancer and then downregulate those that are not. And then it's able to target beneficial estrogen receptors, say, in the bone. So, so yeah, that nature does the job that pharmaceutical companies aren't able to because they're dealing with infinitely intelligent molecules designed by nature versus really what are byproducts of petrochemical industry, which are most of the patented drugs on the market. Yeah. And if you can't patent it, no one wants to market it. So they don't make exactly. money on it. Yeah. Thank you. That yeah. listener, if the listener comprehended that, and I'm sure most do, then they'd realize why you would never look at an FDA-approved drug as a safeguard because it's literally the kiss of death. In order for a company to get an FDA drug approval, the average amount of capital expended up front is $1 billion. For anyone who gets that kind of capital and has a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, they have to take a natural compound, alter it synthetically, which produces a poison literally. And that's how it's able to be given a market you know, exclusivity patent. So when you see FDA drug approval, that's why more than 50% of all FDA approved drugs actually are ripped off the market from causing death and destruction before their patent comes due because they are poisons. And that's almost invariable. Now, there are a new group of FDA-approved drugs, which include now plant-derived compounds, which is better, but they're really just trying to co-op natural medicine because you can grow these plants in your backyard until a drug company gets patents on it, and then, you know, same problem. Yeah, I think it's hilarious that they'll uh, have a, an old drug, a drug that's proven to work, what, whatnot. They'll change it by one molecule and repatent exactly. that and sell it for five times the price as the exact. New, new drug. It's a oh my God. Scam, totally yes. And, and the unintended adverse effects of most pharmaceuticals because of this playing like God, playing God is 75 identified adverse effects. And you know, my project on statin drugs alone with Greenman Info, I spent months and months looking through the literature for signals of harm. We have over 315 adverse health effects that have been linked now to statin drugs. And that's not uncommon. My assumption is that most of the pharmaceuticals on the market have approximately a thousand adverse effects. Uh, most of them are subclinical. You'll never know that they're slowly harming you. So stay away from drugs, just like the, you know, the old war against drugs slogan went, you know. Yeah, it was really heartbreaking for me to watch my father. He was on statins for almost a decade. And then you eventually you see the, the depression, the brain fog setting in. There's no cholesterol for the brain to work. Yes, exactly. And the brain is over 25% cholesterol. And then I'm um, sure his libido was toast. Mm. And then um, uh, eventually, you know, he got this... Um, uh, thing where his muscles were really, really tight and they started pulling his muscles. The muscles began atrophying. They began oh. atrophying to the point where he couldn't even get up to go to the restroom. He had to go to a nursing home. And this is a, a fairly common side effect of oh, stat medications is, is muscle atrophy. Yeah, in fact, it's an exception for someone not to experience them. Some people, it's subclinical. They don't notice. But yeah, it's um, it's it's really tragic what's happening with statins. They're dangerous. I mean, and you re relative to consumption of dark chocolate, even a small amount, less than an ounce a day, or the consumption of pomegranate juice daily, statins are infinitely higher risk and infinitely less benefit when it comes to clinical outcomes. Yeah.
Yeah. So let's talk about a few spices uh, yeah. that can support hormonal function. Well, one of them, which is very interesting, is cumin, um, because it's been studied to have the ability to increase the production of progesterone in the animal model that, that is in the adrenal gland. So that's one that I, I'm pretty fond of, uh, because there's a lot of other benefits, um, and it, especially with blood sugar and insulin resistance. Um, but the the other one that is not really so much a spice, but I do think that it's worth talking about briefly is soy because it's really been beaten up for so long and, and for good reason in part because the soy industry has really been co-opted by genetic modified uh, processes. So the biotech uh, industry has sort of taken over soy. But if you get organic soy and consume it in moderation, which means like if you're getting a latte instead of using you know regular milk and you use soy milk, there's enough of the isoflavone compounds in there like genistein, dazine, which is going to actually have very therapeutic value. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the research on soy that seems to have caused a red flag initially was on animals and where they fed them large amounts and they caused their pancreas to see some growth, hypertrophy. And that could be a, quote, tumorous growth, but tumors aren't cancer. There's a difference. And so basically, it was blocking the enzymes in the pancreas, proteases, which break down you know, these protease inhibitors. And so it's like this war between the plant kingdom and our bodies. But the reality is that protease inhibitors, like found in soy, actually kill tumors as well and cancers. So so it's, it's just been become, but when you look at all the human studies, epidemiological studies and recurrence of breast cancer studies, soy clearly confers huge survival advantage versus those who don't consume it. And that's in part because it blocks out at the receptor sites, the more potent xenobiotic estrogens, which are everywhere now, unfortunately. You look at things like bisphenol A, you look at parabens, a lot of these chemicals from the plastics, for example, preservatives and body care actually some of them have eclipsed the activity of our own estrogens in our body. So um, that's one that I would say is, is of great value, soy. Um, Are you into soy isoflavone supplementation? That is something I've seen work. In some cases, you can actually, yes, buy an activated form because you have uh, dadzin, uh, dadzin and um, glycetin, which are not converted into the active form. So bacterial fermentation is used, or even our guts will do that, or you could do fermented soy foods, tempeh, miso, natto, all contain the, quote, active form. Um, so you can buy supplement forms of it, but sometimes they'll just put in the isoflavones non-converted. So you want to make sure it says dazain, E-I-N at the end, or glycetine versus the I-N, because there's a difference. Um, but, you know, because soy is so controversial, you could do flax seed, and that would probably be just as valuable in certain respects. Uh, it, it contains enterolactone, uh, enterodiol. Um, so, so basically, it's able to break down in the gut again into beneficial estrogen modulators. Um, trying to think what other spices that are really noteworthy here. Maybe turmeric? Uh, Curcumin or those? Turmeric. Oh, well, yeah. Turmeric is a good one all around. Um, there is some evidence to show that it does seem to modulate the stress response in the body. So it actually has quite a lot of research now on it having an antidepressant effect, which is important because a lot of women, as they age, 
start to see the hormone insufficiency, which starts to zap their well-being and their ability to handle just regular stress. And they get overdiagnosed with things like depression or anxiety when it's a hormone issue beneath it. So given the you know, option, if they're diagnosed with sort of a hormone deficiency-related psychiatric condition, then turmeric might actually be a good alternative. There were several studies recently done on comparing it to Prozac, finding that Prozac was not more effective than uh, turmeric. And in this case, they used curcumin. It's the primary polyphenol, of course, makes it super yellow. Regular turmeric is about 3 to 5%. And you can buy extracts worth or less than less thinized, meaning they're bound to the phospholipids, which help make it water soluble and get through the barrier in the liver, known as the glucuronidation barrier. And that'll get into systemic circulation and then through the brain theoretically. And about 750 milligrams a day of curcumin minimum would be ideal. And then a lot of side benefits, of course, is it's insurance policy against cancer. Certainly, things like arthritis issues, osteoarthritis, are going to be benefited. So there's a lot of benefits to turmeric for sure. I love turmeric as it helps to detox heavy metals and reduce food sensitivity reactions and so many benefits. Anti-inflammatory pain. Mm. I give it to all my clients. I think it's just an amazing herb. Um, So what about black cohosh? Uh, This is one that's really big. Uh, Yes. You know, postmenopausal supplementation. Yeah, it's very good, actually. Um, there's some research that I've run into. It's on Greenman Info showing it's at least equipotent to estradiol. So the more powerful estrogen that we associate with HRT, black cohosh can approximate its efficacy. Um, I would consider, though, using as well in tandem Vitex because it seems to have a property of increasing progesterone upregulation. And progesterone, of course, is going to help with opposing, you know, unopposed estrogen. And then, of course, it's the mother hormone from which estrogen is produced. So I like going further sort of upstream to the source of the deficiency. So Vitex and Blackhawsh and Tandem, I think, are an excellent way to go about it. What is um, Vitex? What is that? Is that a supplement? Yeah, it's a plant extract uh, known as chasberry as well. Oh. I think it's Vitus agnia is the Latin name. And that's the plant that uh, there's a lot of good research on it helping with, I believe it actually is for follicle stimulating hormones. So it seems to modulate directly the underlying pathways, uh, you know, which, which will help to upregulate production of the entire cascade. Um, so, yeah, that's one I would consider as well. Um, so how are you, how do you feel about taking uh, hormone drops, like say precursors to the hormones like pregnenolone and DHEA can you, and, uh, can you yeah. talk about some of the, the problems or perhaps the benefits of doing uh, that? Well, certainly there's a lot of research, I mean, for example, on DHEA in autoimmune conditions that are linked to adrenal fatigue. Um, it does seem to really help boost adrenal function. If there's trouble producing adequate cortisol, let's say you're, you're, you've been under traumatic conditions, even just, again, having two children would be enough or even one child. To, to be a mother, for example, for five, ten years without enough help would be enough to cause significant zapping of the adrenal glands. And DHEA has been shown to be pretty effective because it's a good precursor to that pathway as well as testosterone. Pregnenolone's... Um, really down, I mean, upstream in terms of its, you know, pregnenolone before progesterone. And then that's, it's often called the memory molecule. In fact, um, I haven't had a lot of experience working with people where they've used it. 
But I can say it makes a lot of sense. If one, if one is going to not just go to estrogen replacement or testosterone, taking pregnenolone under the guidance, I would say, of a clinician who's done the proper labs would not be a bad idea either. Um, I think it's worthwhile. I've heard some practitioners say it's almost like playing Russian roulette because you don't know if DHEA is going to produce testosterone or estrogens. That's a really good point. Absolutely. And then, of course, even when you've met the goal and produced the right amount of the target hormone, the problem is, of course, once you've produced it, it has a life cycle and it's got to be degraded and then ultimately gotten out of the body. And, you know, it's important, especially for those who are taking supplements that will or replacement therapies that will produce additional estrogen to get adequate levels of things like sulforaphane, uh, which are going to help to break down properly the estrogens. You know, there's the 2-hydroxyl and 16-hydroxyl metabolites, and they're in a ratio. And, of course, the um, 16, as I recall, that's the beneficial, and that's the one that has anti-estrogenic properties. And 2 is considered more of a risk for cancer promotion. So if you get the right amount of cofactors, especially, again, cruciferous vegetables, sulforaphane is the active ingredient that makes, you know, broccoli sulfurous, um, you're going to do a lot to protect yourself from the risk. So again, those who are on HRT, you don't have to freak out. You just want to make sure you're taking proper precautions. You're making sure your liver is flowing correctly. Your bowel is 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 extracting the bile correctly, enough fiber, for example, to pull it out. And it's just a matter of common sense, I guess, when it comes to that. Yeah, I do urine hormone testing from Precision Analytical. And uh, and when women are breaking down their... It's very important, I think, to not just see the hormone yeah. levels, but the metabolites. Because when you because ha- I had somewhat high 4-hydroxy metabolites, ah. which is correlated with xenoestrogens and plastics. And I uh, had a bad habit of drinking out of, you know, plastic bottles. Yeah. And things like oh, that. wow. That's and really... And so and I have, you know, have to work on that. Um, yeah. So I think it's... Uh, you know, yeah. really interesting to look at all the, the metabolites as well. That's fascinating. So there's a 4-hydroxyl estrone. Is that metabolite associated with plastics and xenobiotics? Or, yeah, xenobiotics, yeah. That's important information. I would be very interested in a test like that um, yeah. because I think well, we're so I'm exposed. happy to do one for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll have to do that then. Yeah. I might be higher than I think, yeah. right? I try to do Mountain Valley water whenever possible, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and I have a distiller, and which is glass-based, but... Gosh, it's so prevalent, the plastics these days. I mean, it's hard. It's impossible to escape. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely impossible. It is true. Yeah, it's um, very hard. I did find a good amount of research on probiotic strains are capable of breaking down some of the compounds that we are incapable of breaking down, like bisphenol A. And some of the organophosphorus pesticides um, can be properly broken down because they use the phosphorus and carbon as a fuel source, these little bacteria are pretty clever. So fermented food, of course, is always a great idea and other means of eating a probiotic-rich diet. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about wild yam because that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's a really popular one that uh, you find a lot, of, a lot of supplements to help hormonal support. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting supplement because the digestin within it, the biomolecule, is used to produce a lot of the bioidentical hormones. So, But there's been, as I understand it, very little evidence that it, it itself works by being converted into steroid hormones, that it modulates endocrine pathways in a way that I guess we truly can't appreciate yet. I don't. I personally don't know that they've identified how it works, but it is part of a very ancient tradition of herbalism. And I would almost default to some of the oral tradition 
Uh, and, and actually herbalists that are using it would be where I would go for advice on using it. Otherwise, do I have, I'm just checking my database because we have so 1,700 herbs and natural substances indexed to see what research is. Because I, I know I've indexed some research on wild yam. Hmm. Wow. Well, unless it is actually not on there. Have you any experience with wild yam? In your- no, I don't. I guess, um, you know, I just have heard of it as a, a popular supplement to support hormones. Yeah, interesting. Maybe you okay. have it under the scientific name or something. <laughs> well, yeah, it's possible, but I know I've got research on yams somewhere that's fascinating because yams have been studied for reducing the actual food yams, um, hormone uh, insufficiency symptoms like hot flash. And that's another thing that I'm fond of is um, there's a, a clinician and, and researcher, Dr. Kelly Brogan, who works a lot with women for psychiatric issues. She's a psychiatrist. And what she found was that through her experience working with women, yams and roots, vegetables were a huge important part of the diet because if you look at the paleo community, it's kind of male-dominated and they try to exclude all carbohydrate. Grains definitely get out. Yeah. But it turns out that they the yams are really beneficial to women in her experience. I would say if there are women listening and you're looking for an alternative to a potato, I would do the, the yam food itself because I think it does have some of the medicinal properties we're referring to. Yeah, I'm not big on the low carb diet for sure. I think I find a lot of my female clients, they they or even men too, they need carbohydrates. They they a lot of people it does not work for them to do a very very low carb or ketogenic diet. That's interesting, and I think that's probably true too. When we get a greater appreciation for the gendered nature of this field, because right now the research model is so based on the male Caucasian body that it's really still cutting edge on some level to, to, to say what you're saying. I think it's true. Women have different needs and, and certainly carbohydrate uh, levels, the right kind, of course, I think should be used appropriately. Yeah. And so what about maca? Um, a lot of my clients that are trying to fix their hormones are downing maca in their smoothies every morning. Are there any well, cautions or issues with maca? I find it to be fascinating because maca is so effective for fertility when it comes to the animal model that it's you can't really argue with results that they, you tend to become more fecund, more uh, more likely to, to, to have a successful pregnancy and, and birth if you take it as an animal, talking about goats and such. Um, and then there's been some research on postmenopausal women using it for psychological symptoms and sexual dysfunction. Um, but when it comes to the actual research on the hormone pathways or its ability to increase testosterone and estrogen, um, I, there's not really that much that I've found. I was surprised, you know, because I, I thought I would find that it increases hormone production, but I haven't found that. So it's, it's fascinating. I guess that's part of what we're learning about the body is that sometimes we won't find a, an actual molecular mechanism to to explain the clinical result. But I would say... The proof is in the pudding, and women, especially older women, should consider using it because of the good results that I've heard a lot of people get. Are there any special considerations or anything you want to add about maybe the special needs of postmenopausal women? Yeah, well, I mean, I think women today are truly being victimized by the system of overdiagnosis that's occurring. So we're doing these mass screenings of asymptomatic populations, right? No symptoms. You're just supposed to go and get yourself scanned or tested for a precancer. And what's happened is that over decades of doing this, the results clearly now show that women who, for example, go through annual or biannual screenings have increased breast cancer mortality. Because 
what they're often diagnosing early stage are completely benign lesions and they're treating them as if they were cancer. And then, of course, once they identify cancer that would never have caused symptoms or caused death as if it was and they treated it, it inflates the statistics like they're saving all these women's lives. So this is happening, too, with osteoporosis. A lot of women uh, believe there's such a thing as osteopenia and osteoporosis, and they don't realize that those standards were set up by the World Health Organization completely arbitrarily in the early 90s and what they did is they took a tw- uh, 25 to 30-year-old young adult woman and said, every woman from here on out, no matter what your age, you could be 110, has to have the bone density of this 25-year-old woman. And if they don't, then they will be labeled as having either osteopenia or osteoporosis. And that's called the T-score. Okay, So if you have osteopenia, you have one standard deviation from what they consider the norm. And if you have osteoporosis, it's 2.5 or more. turns out that a 30-year-old... 16% of them, according to just the normal variation of physiology, have osteopenia in that scale. And then 3% have osteoporosis. It's completely arbitrary because it's based on x-rays showing you how much mineral is in the bone. It doesn't tell you about structural integrity or bone quality. So what they did is they had people adopt these standards. Billions of dollars of machinery was bought into. And then they rolled out the bisphosphonate drug category which is one of the most toxic of all categories in medicine. It was first used, this chemical, to prevent scaling in plumbing equipment here in Florida for the (laughs) citrus groves. It can cause it to just dissolve the bone and the jaw. Osteonecrosis is one of the most commonly known adverse effects, and it just just destroys the gut. It can poke a hole in your stomach. They tell you to stand and drink water you know, because it will basically burn a hole in your stomach. It is poison. And so women are being diagnosed as if aging is a disease, and then they're slapped a a diagnosis that can justify giving them poison chemicals. And then, again, they become a statistic. And this is happening with thyroid cancer. It's happening with breast cancer. It's happening with osteoporosis. All these, you know, screening techniques are basically redefining the body as a, you know, entropic machine that is, you know, basically needs medical intervention when, when there's nothing wrong. So I would say women need to be extremely cautious. They need to be listening to your podcast. They need to be educating themselves on resources like Green Med Info. The research is there. Okay. You don't have to be a victim. Your body is this miraculous thing that, that regenerates every moment. And we have to be extremely careful about over-medicalization of the body. Yeah, I think it's, it's very, very clear, and I think more and more uh, consumers and patients are becoming aware of this, but the, the T-score of 2.5 or less, and many of these arbitrary uh, you know, ideal ranges and lab ranges are yeah. set up to sell medication, and they, are yes. not, they have nothing to do with reality and health. We know, in fact, I've identified a, a rather large set of studies from high-impact journals showing the higher bone mineral density you have as you age, the higher is your risk for actual malignant cancer. It's a profound increase, and so it's quite the opposite. Our bodies were designed to lose bone mineral density as we age, especially around 40 for women. The ovarian reserve goes down, natural thinning of the bone. That is actually um, important in reducing actual uh, cancer risks. So Again, everything is almost backwards. The point, I guess, is you have to trust the body, trust nature's design, and then work with what you have. Obviously, being aware of one's body, uh, eye and gait disorders are a greater independent risk for fracture than is bone mineral density. So, of course, body awareness and, and all that is just as important, of course. Well, Sarah, I have a, a question I like to ask all of my guests. Yeah. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? 
Oh my. The most pressing health issue today. I have to say, I probably would put on equal ground vaccines and uh, genetic modification of our food supply because they actually converge. People don't realize this, but everyone's marching against Monsanto. Monsanto is a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Pfizer indirectly, which is actually Pharmacia is the company that took over Monsanto and then Pfizer owns that. So it's like these companies are genetically modifying our bodies through basically producing a lot of the vaccines on the market today are byproducts of genetic modification like Jardisol, the most toxic vaccine ever produced yeah. in terms of the adverse events reports is a GMO vaccine. And then once you alter the food supply and the biosphere in the way that they are, you can't undo it because it's like a bad Ford. You can recall it, but you can't recall a GMO organism. Once it's in the biosphere, the genes can transfer horizontally and through biopollution, there's fertilization that occurs of these non-GMO plants. So eventually, by the way, there will be no GMO, any, any soy or corn on the planet because it all will naturally become you know, GMO. This is, this is a violation of our most basic informed consent and health, health rights. You, know, you can't make these decisions that are permanent for every generation to the future and claim that it's somehow good for us. It's just so, so for me, having the right to choose whether to vaccinate and or whether to be exposed to GMO foods so we at least need them labeled is like the number one health concern we're facing because even if we don't really care about it, we usually have grandchildren who will be affected and the planet itself is actually being altered through the GM agricultural model irreversibly. So so I, I hope that makes people more conscious of, you know, their their choices, you know. Yeah, it's it's frightening a uh, concept for me as well because I think it, it's so important that we have these seed banks that have heirloom seeds and we save our seeds. Yeah, uh, we save these uh, you know seeds that are have not been modified in any way. Um, they uh, you know have been naturally perhaps hybridized or they're they're centuries old seeds yes. so that we can save our, our healthy food supply because I think it's going to be uh, have huge huge health impacts uh, from future generations. Absolutely. That's a good solution right there. That's one good thing that we could do. So, Sarah, can you tell the listeners where they can find you and about any of your future plans? Sure. Um, Our primary way of reaching the consumer patient listener is through our website and our free newsletter. So daily, we put out articles, videos, memes, there's free events, etc., uh, so if they go to Greenman Info, they can download my free PDF, The Dark Side of Wheat, which explains my feeling that no one should ever eat wheat and gives you a good argument for that. And then, uh, of course, Facebook, social media is how you can find us. And I'm on a lot of the summit events, um, as you are, which is always nice to be your colleague. And uh, so they can find us that way. Well, great. Well, Sarah, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. That was really, really good. I know that listeners going to get thank a lot you. out of that. I hope so. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And everyone, you can find more about me at liveto110.com, learn about how to heal your health conditions naturally, and all about my version of paleo, the modern paleo diet and detoxification, one of my favorite subjects. So thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.